Please be seated. All right, we've come now to the sermon for the week, and Brother John is going to bring, be bringing us the word, again from the book of Amos, Abolitionism and the Gospel of the Kingdom. I love that we uh, sing Christmas songs here around here. Amen. Uh, especially how post-millennial they are and, and how far the curse is found. Yes. Amen. And it Amen. is found everywhere, and everywhere there will be redemption. Amen. So uh, Jason asked me to preach on abolitionism, and it's a pretty big subject, a weighty one. Uh, it's difficult. Um, it has to do with murder. So it's very weighty. Um, and lots of points in this message could take series to properly unpack, so apologies if it seems like a lot at once, because it is a lot, but um, you know, today we will be looking at justice and mercy for the murdered. It's a huge topic. Uh, in short, abolitionism is the biblical answer to a societal and covenantal sin. Uh, given the state of affairs in our nation, abolitionism is most often applied to abortion, the abortion holocaust, though abolitionism could and should be applied to other injustices as well. Uh, abolitionism seeks to answer the question of how does the bride of Christ address and combat great evil in society? So that's what we're going to be covering in short. Uh, first, I'd like to give just some brief insight on my background and how I came to adopt these doctrines of abolitionism. I'm a, a former member of what some would say that be the notorious abolitionist church in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, I was a member of that congregation for over three years and uh, uh, this is where the, the founder of the modern abortion abolitionist movement fellowships, uh, his name's Russell. Now, abolitionism is not new, obviously. It goes back even further than just slavery abolitionism because abolitionism is a biblical doctrine, and biblical doctrines did not start with William Wilberforce or William Lloyd Garrison or Wendell Phillips or anybody else. Biblical doctrines started because it's a reflection of the character of God. But this modern, um, how to say, version of it that we have now um, was in large part due to a couple of men from Norman. And I, I first met Russell about 12 years ago in Norman, Oklahoma. And though, of course, Russell doesn't have any official title or legal sway over the abolitionist community, he is widely considered a leader of this broad movement. And uh, I met him long before AHA, and uh, we met through a mutual friend, and we bonded over our fandom of J.J. Abrams' Lost. So something as trivial <laughs> as that. Um, and he struck me as an incredibly intelligent and gifted man, and it, it, I was about 18 years old then, and um, I recall seeing some of his paintings at a coffee shop, and it was just very, very much in-depth and complicated. And Anyway, I was blessed to get to know some of those guys, and eventually I moved to southwest Oklahoma, and I became a member of a PCA congregation. And I remained a member there for several years. Uh, at that point, I was introduced to theonomy and postmillennialism, some good ideas like that, and of course, the proper view of baptism. And, uh, <laughs> oh, oh. I won't get into that today, but uh, anywho, move, moving on. And, and during this time, I remained friends with a lot of my abolitionist friends, and I eventually seeing you know some very well made and well designed anti-abortion graphics on Facebook and other social media things. So I did some investigation because uh, I knew some of those guys, and I was like, "What is this that they're talking about?" And I was still learning about. God's law, and I was still growing in my faith, and I saw that that these men and women were very much serving a king and not just a cause. And, and these were not typical pro-lifers, though there are many good, good pro-lifers. 
Uh, these men were highly doctrinal in their rhetoric and methods. And that made sense because later on I, I found out that although modern abolitionism is greatly influenced by men like historical slavery abolitionists like Garrison and Phillips and Wilberforce, they were also very much influenced by men like Francis Schaeffer and R.J. Rushduni, and it showed. So as a young theonomist, and I'm still a young theonomist, it was very clear that these radical anti-abortion and orthodox Christians were onto something. It didn't take long for me to come to realize that all theonomists should be abolitionists, and all abolitionists should be theonomists. Amen. So with that, uh, what is abolitionism? And what does it have to do with the kingdom of God? Abolitionism is an ideology with five core tenets, and uh, the first tenet is that it is biblical and theological. It's rather broad, but uh, abolitionism is not a secular humanistic philosophy mm -hmm. to just save babies and win debates about biology and where, when does life begin. Yeah. Uh, abolitionism is rooted in two biblical and irrefutable doctrines. First, that human beings are created in the image of God and reflect his image. And second, the creator himself became a man in order to rescue mankind from sin, self-destruction, death, and eternal separation from God. So when we murder human beings, we murder the image of God. Matthew 25, 40 says, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these, you did to me. So to be clear, when we tolerate abortion, understanding that the defenseless and the innocent child is the least of these, we tolerate not only the killing of a person, but also a form of blasphemous regicide. Mm. It is as if we are tolerating the murder of Christ Jesus himself. Mm. We sometimes forget the significance of our king coming to earth in the womb of a woman. The incarnation did not happen in Bethlehem in a barn. The incarnation happened the very second that Mary became pregnant with our king. Amen. Jesus, our king, he's our provision, our comforter, our advocate, the ruler and judge of all the cosmos, was incarnate in the womb of a poor Jewish woman. Scientists have discovered that at the split second of fertilization, there's a bright flash of light. And when the light of the world became flesh, there was a bright flash of light. The beginning of life begins with light. And that light is Christ Jesus. So Jesus, the firstborn of God, became like us. Became like how every single one of us as was at one point in time. A tiny, tiny human being in the womb. Unable to even be seen without a microscope. Placed in the womb in order to bring about the redemption of his people and all the world. So abolitionism is built on these two basic theological propositions, and that's why it's the first tenet of abolitionism, biblical and theological. The second tenet of abolitionism, and of course these are all tied together, so there'll be some overlapping, is that abolitionism is providential. So abolitionism is therefore optimistic. To be sure, not every abolitionist is confessionally postmillennial, even though I am working on that. Um, however, the goal of abolitionism is intrinsically optimistic. We are abolitionists of abortion, not abolitionists of an abortion or two. We praise God for every child saved, for sure. But our goal is not to just save a child here and there. Our goal is not even to make abortion illegal. Our goal is to make abortion unthinkable. So we depend upon the providence and the sovereignty of God because he giveth to us all life and breath and all things. So relying upon the providence of God is why we seek the abolition of abortion. And this is why there's an abolitionist movement as opposed to just another pro-life 
sidewalk counseling ministry. Not that sidewalk ministry is bad, it certainly is not. I've partaked in much of that sort of activism and evangelism, but we need to do more than to just attempt to save a child every now and again. Uh, a similar idea is when we strive to shut down abortion clinics with pro-life legislation. Now this may be a surprise, but attempting to shut down abortion mills does little to nothing in defense of our smallest neighbors. Mm. No, no matter how many horrific acts happen within the walls of a Planned Parenthood surgical abortion center, shutting down a place does not even begin to address the demonization and murders that are likely happening even in conservative, pro-life, and evangelical churches mm -hmm. through abortive fashion birth control methods and the destruction, destructive in vitro fertilization uh, treatments. Mm -hmm. So let me be clear, surgical abortions are just the gruesome tip of the iceberg. Mm. It's just what is in the public eye, not very much even. Mm. So even in solid reformed churches, Abortive fashion, birth control, and destructive and murderous IVF practice is not uncommon. Hmm. It is under the surface. It is certainly not preached against, and it is unheard of for it to be disciplined hmm. in churches that pride themselves on believing in church discipline. Hmm. God forgive us. It is not just the liberals. It is not just the atheists. We stand against abortion whenever it's bloody images of children that are already well advanced, but one of their single-celled organisms or pre-implantation, we forget those. So no, there is certainly nothing wrong with shutting down abortion centers. There is certainly nothing wrong with shutting those down, and, but that won't abolish abortion. Mm. And of course, true abolition will shut those places down, but it's not the same thing as thinking that shutting down abortion mills will also abolish abortion itself. Mm. It happens everywhere. So we believe that, by God's providence, we will do more than shut down a few buildings and save a few babies. And it's because the battle to abolish abortion is primarily spiritual. This does not mean that there are not material tools at our disposal, or that this fight will not affect the material world. Of course it will. But rather that the primary means by which we will win this fight is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, we are not seeking only to make abortion illegal, we're seeking to make it unthinkable, and that can only be done by the power of Jesus Christ. Which leads to the third tenet of abolitionism, is being gospel-centric. We all hear a lot about ministries being gospel-centric. This is a little different. So, first, abolitionism is biblical and theological. It is ideologically built on theology, not humanistic philosophy. Second, we rely on the providence of God for a victory. And third, the means by which we achieve our goal is the gospel. So abortion is sin. And because abortion is sin, and the only answer for sin is repentance and a saving faith in the finished work of Christ, the gospel must be the ultimate answer to abortion. Mm -hmm. The gospel and the gospel alone can truly and permanently bring about justice. It brings redemption from destruction. It is the wellspring of love, hope, and joy, and in the real answer to abortion. And though the gospel of our Lord Jesus certainly saves us from our sin, and that's important, that's vital, it is not just a personal gospel about getting out of hell. Amen. It also requires discipleship. Christ told his disciples to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, Matthew 28, 20. 
That's the bit at the end of the Great Commission, commission that many people leave off. Um, teaching all to observe all that he commands by necessity transforms society if we believe that the Great Commission will actually be fulfilled. And we know that that is exactly what is necessary to truly end abortion. Now, basic economics teaches that whenever there's a great market demand for a service or product, the service or product is supplied, even if there's laws against it. Laws don't change that. The laws do serve a very important function in declaring God's law and establishing justice for those who are victimized. We must also strike at the root of the problem, and that is the hearts of man. Again, this is a gospel issue because it is a sin issue. And though we strive to pass laws so that murder may be justifiably punished, and so that those who have murder in their hearts fear punishment, the discipleship of the nations by the power of the gospel of the kingdom is what will truly put to sin, I'm sorry, put to death the sin of widespread and culturally acceptable abortion. That is why abolitionism is gospel-centric. I've won debates in front of abortion clinics arguing about biology when life began. And men and women both, the women with the child in the womb and the men who are paying for the abortion or protecting the woman, her decision, they don't care. They don't care. Mm -hmm. So although we can talk about SLED and the size of development and all these different philosophical argumentations, it is the gospel that saves lives and it's the gospel that will save humanity. And um, that's why it's vital to understand that as a, as a tenet of abolitionism. Now, the fourth tenet of abolitionism is the obligation of the church. This is perhaps the most controversial tenet. Um, simply put, the obligation of the church is first that the church, as the bride of Christ, has a duty and an obligation to seek justice and strive to provide mercy for the least of these. Mm -hmm. uh, second, because the severity and the widespreadness and the closeness, the proximity to, of abortion to us as a society, uh, we have a specific obligation to address that sin. Now, this doesn't mean that every moment must be spent specifically addressing abortion. I want to make that clear. Of course not. Again, because this is a gospel of the kingdom issue, whatever we are doing in genuinely building the kingdom feeds into building, I'm sorry, feeds into fighting abortion. Mm -hmm. Now, this does not mean that we shouldn't focus on abortion because we should, but it does mean that it is permissible to not live and breathe this particular fight every minute of our lives. Mm -hmm. That's because our first responsibility is to our own faithfulness to Christ and then to our families then to our fellowships, and then to the world, and we need to have that foundation in order to build the building on top of that foundation. But the point is the building, so we must not forget that, mm -hmm. but we need the foundation as well. So now, fighting injustice seems like, well, like really obvious for many Christians to do. Uh, however, there are also many that will preach and teach that it is not the obligation of the believer to seek justice. Mm. Instead, these Teachers will spend their days thinking up endless different flowery ways of articulating the same points of Calvinism over and over and over again. Mm. And these are good points, points that I believe in, mm. I assure you. But we are called to do more than articulate and meditate upon how we have been saved. Amen. Amen. So what does scripture say about injustice and the duty of the faithful? A lot. I will only give a couple of examples from the New Testament. Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Mm -hmm. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Mm -hmm. As I read a small portion of earlier, there's also Matthew 25, 34 through 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And of course, our Lord answers. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these, you did it to me. Mm -hmm. how, how significant is that? Um, like I, I said earlier, we do not just do injustice to other human beings, we do injustice to our Lord. Mm -hmm. And that is blasphemy. And there's also James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unsaved from the world. It's strong language. Pure and undefiled religion. And that is but, that is but a very small sampling and only from the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, like all of the five tenets, this is, there's plenty to preach. Multiple sermons on this tenet on all these scriptures. And um, Brother John read a passage from Amos, um, and God demands justice, and without that justice, he hates our worship. Mm. Though it is good to gather together and read God's word, and it is good to take communion, it is good to be baptized, without justice, God hates our worship. Mm. Now, what does our own church history and traditions teach us about our duty to pursue justice? Quite a bit. Um, this is not novel. This is something that throughout the history of the church, uh, faithful Christians have believed in. An excerpt from Answer 145 from the Westminster Larger, Westminster Larger Catechism on bearing false witness shows that the duty of Christians extends beyond simply not telling lies. It reads, Concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. So the Westminster divines saw undue silence in a just cause as sin, not only caring about our own personal sins, but also speaking out for just causes is a duty of the individual Christian. Mm -hmm. This means that Christians do not only have a negative command to not give false witness, but also a positive command to speak on behalf of a just cause. Mm -hmm. Another indicator of our obligation is simply thou shall not kill. Hmm. Thou shall not kill 
is the summary, heart of, and surface of the Sixth Commandment. As nearly any reformer, notable theologian, and orthodox commentator has noted, the negative command, thou shalt not kill, is paired with a positive commandment to seek out justice mm -hmm. for those oppressed and to interpose on behalf of... Do not think that merely not getting an abortion or not paying for an abortion is the duty of a Christian. We know that the heart of the Sixth Commandment, as made clear by God's law and further clarified by our Lord in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, is not hating your brother, and inversely, loving your brother. So how are we to love our brother? Now, take care to understand the difference between breaking the negative commandment of God and breaking a positive commandment of God. Uh, I don't want confusion on this point. Uh, you are not guilty of murder literally if you hate your brother in your heart. You should not be put to death by the civil magistrate if you hate your brother in your heart. The just punishment for murder, which is death, does not apply to a man who is simply apathetic. However, it is still true that both are examples of murdering others in your heart. Though every sin makes us worthy of death before God, not every sin is worthy of the civil law bringing about that punishment. Now, the duty of all men before God is broader than merely watching out for ourselves in kind of a self-centered, selfish sort of mentality. While writing on the Sixth Commandment in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, John Calvin states, and this is a great, great quote, To be clear of the crime of murder, it is not enough to refrain from shedding man's blood. If an act you perpetrate, if in endeavor you plot, if in wish you design, you conceive what is adverse to another's safety, you have the guilt of murder. On the other hand, if you do not, according to your means and opportunity, study to defend his safety, by that, human, by that inhumanity you violate the law. But if the safety of the body is so carefully provided for, we may hence infer how much care and exertion is due to the safety of the soul, which is of immeasurably higher value in the sight of God. Now, I, I love this quote for a few reasons. And no, notice this. Not, does, not only does John Calvin equate apathy and inaction in regards to murder with murder itself, he then connects the lack of care for the physical body to a lack of care of the soul. And this is very much unlike many modern Christian pastors and celebrities, mm -hmm. Calvin does not pit the body against the soul. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does rightly account the soul as having a great, great value, but he also connects the care for body to how we care for the soul. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you don't care for the body, how are we to care for the soul? Mm -hmm. Those who pit the body against the soul, as opposed to seeing its natural union, are thinking dualistically, paganly, and irrationally. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the famous missionary Amy Carmichael puts it this way. One can't save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. Souls are more or less securely fastened bodies. And as you can't get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. Mm -hmm. Now John Calvin, like those who followed after him, saw both a positive and negative aspect to the law of God. We are not to transgress the plain law, but we also have duties, positive duties. To hate your brother is to murder him in your heart. Likewise, to know that your brother is being murdered and to do nothing is to murder your brother in your heart as well. Mm. Another point to be made regarding Calvin's quote is his qualifier. He says, according to your means and opportunity. 
Now this is important because not everyone is going to have the same ability to stand outside an abortion clinic every day or dedicate years to fighting legislative battles to pass bills of abolition. But we do have means and we do have opportunity. Can any of us honestly say that any Christian has no means and no opportunity to speak out against the justice? With our wealth of resources, wealth of disposable time, and our proximity, proximity to the poor of abortion, I am confident that we, with the very, very rare exception, have a great deal of opportunity and many different means to seek justice and oppose evil. These means may look very different according to your income, time, location, giftings, but we do have the ability. It is up to each of us to honestly look at our means and then to be faithful towards what we can do. Simply by knowing and understanding the positive aspects of the law of God, what our duties are as opposed to what we should not do, we can firmly establish a duty given to the church for the establishment of justice. Now, the last tenet of abolitionism is immediatism. This is probably the most misunderstood tenet. Though more controversial than the first three tenets, the tenet of immediatism is really nothing more than the orthodox teaching of repentance applied to national or covenantal sin. And I'll get back to why it's simply repentance in a moment. Uh, perhaps one of the most clear and helpful definitions of immediatism is that immediatism is a no-compromising strategy that does not accept any legal means or rhetoric that betray the very values we are seeking to establish. So within the context of abortion abolitionism, immediatism is a strategy that calls for civil repentance as well as the establishment of justice according to God's holy and perfect word. Now, there is and cannot be no compromise in this standard. So, for example, if we lived in a culture where something as gruesome as sexual assault were legal and generally accepted as normal behavior by half the population, say, uh, any kind of piece of legislation or rhetoric or sermon or other practice that assumed the criminality of that sin, of sexual assault, that would be immediatist. Immediatist, immediatist strategy could not include any kind of language or action that implicitly or explicitly assumes any sort of neutrality on that sin. A law outlawing something like sexual assault for only white women, for example, would not be immediatist. Mm -hmm. Even if it was legal for everyone before, that would not be justice. Likewise, an immediatist approach to abortion could not include any language or action that even implicitly assumes any sort of ethical neutrality or legal legitimacy of abortion. Mm -hmm. This would include laws banning different methods of abortion, but not abortion itself, as well as you know, banning abortion at certain levels of development, but not abortion itself. So mediatism teaches that compromises on the core values of our end goal are harmful towards the end goal. Mm -hmm. Now, that the inverse of mediatism, that's incrementalism. Incrementalism is a strategy that is open to, uh, believes in, and sometimes participates in legal and rhetorical actions, things like sermons or pamphleting or legislative bills, that compromise the underlying values of those fighting for total abolition. So within the context of abortion abolitionism, incrementalism is a strategy that calls for civil abolition, which is good, 
as well as the establishment of justice, which is good, according to any pragmatic and utilitarian methods that they could see as potentially helpful. It's not good. By definition, compromises are seen as acceptable so long as there is a perceived trajectory towards the end goal. For example, to use the previous example, if we lived in a culture where sexual assault was legal and generally accepted by half the population, any sermon or rhetoric or piece of legislation that only made it illegal for half the population to be sexually assaulted, that would be considered a good step in the right direction. So a law outlaying Outlawing the sexual assault of only white women, for example, would be an incrementalist law. Hopefully that clarifies a couple of things. So incrementalism, as opposed to immediatism, teaches that compromises on the core values of our end goal can be useful in reaching the end goal. Now, to be sure, immediatism is oftentimes confused, and it's straw-manned oftentimes, and it, it can perhaps be a confusing subject, so we should be patient with one another in, in showing each other how this doesn't really make sense when you compare it to the, the law of God. Increments aren't automatically incrementalist. So according to the historical understanding to the idea that the devil's in the ism, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. We should be pious, should we not? Pious mm -hmm. is being faithful. Should we be pietists? No. No, <laughs> we should not. So likewise, some increments are ethically and judicially legitimate, but incrementalism as a doctrine of pragmatism is not good. It is more than the dictionary definition sums of, it part, sums of, it, of its parts. An increment that does not implicitly or explicitly assume the legitimacy of abortion could be seen as justifiable and immediatist in essence. So, uh, for example, there is geographical abolition. So if we were to abolish abortion in Virginia, that would not be incrementalist if the state of Virginia did so. Now if the USA, the federal government, abolished abortion in a segment of its nation, that would be incrementalist because it had the power to enact justice everywhere and it did not. Mm -hmm. So by in enacting abolition in only a portion, it served up injustice to the rest of the nation. Mm -hmm. So it's about jurisdiction, which is part of covenantalism, who has the jurisdiction. So Virginia has a jurisdiction for Virginia, and Virginia abolishes abortion, that is justice. And of course, if we abolish abortion in the entire United States, but we didn't abolish abortion in, say, like, China, that would not be an incrementalist either. And likewise, this would be the same, whether it's in Oklahoma or Virginia, it's all about jurisdiction. So another confusion is thinking that immediatism is the same as overnightism. Mm. I know there's a lot of isms and kind of philosophy talk here, but hopefully this is being clarified a little bit. Immediatism is not overnightism. Immediatism understands the reality that abortion will most likely not be abolished tomorrow. This, however, does not justify preaching or demanding any goal less than total and absolute repentance and change. Immediatists understand that while we keep demanding and working to accomplish this goal, society may advance only in increments in the meantime. We do not denounce such advances, but we also continue to demand the full repentance and only the full repentance. The last major confusion is thinking that immediatism somehow denies that there's change over time. 
Amiotism does not deny that God works progressively through history. Remember, we're talking about repenting from sin. We're not just talking about change. Similar to how we call for the total personal obedience while understanding that sanctification takes time, Amiotism teaches total abolitionism, I'm sorry, total abolition, while understanding that it will take time. Mediatism is a form of civil repentance, not simply change over time. And that's why mediatism is simply repentance. It's not really more complicated than that. We would never suggest to a brother that he should simply cut down on his sin a little bit. Mm -hmm. Hey, commit a little bit less adultery this month, brother. <laughs> no, of course not. That's insane. We tell a brother to put that sin to death, mm. not to keep that sin around and try to minimize it. Though we know that sometimes repenting of deeply ingrained sin can take time and we should be patient with our brothers, God demands from us no partial obedience and no partial repentance. God demands full sovereignty in your life. So we are to repent of sin fully, and we are to call for the repentance of sin fully. Amen. Even if that repentance takes time. Our call in this world is prophetic. And our pastoral care should never be for just the reducing of sin. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So likewise, when we call in our churches and cities, counties, states, and nation in the world to repent of the murder of the preborn, we must not lessen our prophetic call and, we j and just try to minimize that sin. We do not go with the masses of evangelical pro-lifers and call for the lessening of the slaughter. Hmm. God's law is not unclear on this, and God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Hmm. Now, a lot of times in our culture, we don't like the idea of a God that hates. But anytime there's something like hate, it demands a direction. Hate what? Mm -hmm. If God loves justice, he hates injustice. Amen. Amen. So we should tremble in fear of God at the very thought of compromising on what he hates. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that, brethren. So this is about building the kingdom. And we serve the king. A king that we know is putting all of his enemies under his feet. So no, we, we shouldn't march to the capital in D.C. and try to get the best that we can get. We do not feed on the scraps that the political elite toss at our feet. Understand me, whenever Christians demand abolition, and, in, and instead the politicians offer us hollow and unjust regulationist measures, but, but then we Christians, we passively accept that, and we bargain with the world and retreat back into our churches. The politicians that did that, the politicians that are commanded to be the ministers of God for justice, are treating us like dogs under their table. Their table. And yet we keep on weakly and passively coming to that table with our tails between our legs. Not to eat at the table, but to scrape some leftover scraps off the floor. In Gary North's Dominion and Common Grace, Dr. North paints a picture of the pagans and the unregenerate feeding off the scraps of the table of our Lord. And this is vital. We are not the ones who will be under the table surviving off the scraps of an evil civilization. Amen. No, the table 
That table is the world, and it does not belong to the unjust and the wicked. Yeah. Amen. The world is Christ's. Yeah. Christ is king of this world, and we are his ambassadors. And Christ demands justice. Christ demands that all nations repent and believe the gospel. And we should demand the same. And we can, and we should. And we are his hands, and we are his feet, and we come in his name, and that has power, brethren. Praise God. We have not only the assurance of personal salvation, which is sweet, mm. but also the victory in history. We may be just laying the foundation for that victory that will come with our grandchildren, maybe our great-grandchildren, but Christ will have that victory over the bloodshed of the innocent. Mm -hmm. He will have that victory. And that is why I'm an abolitionist, because I believe we can actually abolish it. Mm. As Christ came to this world to abolish sin and death, we, as his ambassadors, should strive for the end of the innocent blood being shed. Mm. And in this way, we can, with the help of Almighty God, begin to abolish abortion with boldness and consistency, and in the hope of that victory that the cross bought us. Let's pray, brethren. Lord, may we have a heart that reflects your character, mm -hmm. a heart that breaks for the weak, yes. and a heart that is angered by injustice. Yes. Create in us a boldness and a care for your kingdom and the weakest within that kingdom. Mm. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being good, for being just. Mm. And may we have a soft heart for, for the plight of others. Mm. May we be faithful, but may we also love one another. The preborn, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and any who have been trampled upon because of injustice. Mm. Let our lives be a sacrificial reflection of your tender mercies to the lost, the sick, and the hungry. Let all of our works bring you glory and spread the good news that your kingdom has come. Mm. Amen. Amen. Amen.